The language of Afrikaans remains a contested issue in South Africa. The conversation, or rather the controversy over the medium of instruction at traditionally Afrikaans universities, such as Stellenbosch and the Free State University in Northwest, Potchefstroom campus particularly of the University of the Northwest, and even Pretoria, this continues to be a debated issue in this country. Should it be Afrikaans? Should it be English or a combination or a hybrid? What about the other indigenous South African languages? Of course, Afrikaans is a Creole language that evolved during the 19th century under colonialism in southern Africa. The simplified, creolized language had its root mainly in Dutch, mixed with seafarer variants of Malay, Portuguese, Indonesian, and the indigenous Khoikhoi and San languages. To tell us more about the history of the language and to engage us in the language, ons welkom vanan professor Hein Willemse van Universiteit van Pretoria. Prof Willemse, goeienavond, baie verwelkom hier by SAFM. Okay, my Afrikaans bundles are done. Um, at least I have to think about it before I speak. I don't just flow. But I think Afrikaans is probably a worthy conversation to have in terms of how we got the language itself. Many South Africans might have many assumptions, but let's have something a little more academic as to the Afrikaans that we know it now, its genesis and its history, at least from a linguistic perspective. Try and steer from the, polit- the politics of the language, please. Yes, um, I think one should, obviously, languages always are connected to politics in one way or the other. Yes. Uh, It always deals with with power. It always deals with uh, relationships of power. Uh, And obviously, in the case of of Afrikaans, uh, it has its origins. It's what is called in linguistic terms, it's lexifier. That's uh, the main stratum of, of the language in terms of its words and where where you find these lexical items, these these words, uh, where, where, where you know where do they come from? In, in the majority of cases, it probably comes from from Dutch or varieties of Dutch, and the reason for that is quite clear cut. Um, uh, obviously, we have the uh, the establishment of the halfway uh, uh, station at uh, what we today called Cape Town, the Cape Colony. And obviously for over 150 years, we had the settlement of the merchant company. The Dutch is an India company in, uh, in uh, or at the Cape of Goodup. And as a result of that, you had the development of a variety of very interesting uh, language and linguistic developments. You had the importation on the one hand of slaves almost immediately after the establishment of the halfway center. You had uh, at the Cape, not only people who were uh, indigenous to the particular region, but indigenous in terms of uh, uh, that they were nomadic tribes, uh, people, groups who moved about in, in, the, in the area. So you had a circulation in the sense of people of various backgrounds as well. Uh, and then you had uh, the people who were, who were colonists at the time when they settled here. They came from a variety of backgrounds. They were not only uh, what we today could call Dutch. They would, would have been uh, Scandinavians or Germans or French or even Italians and so forth. Uh, you know, those are quite uh, contemporary uh, labels. Uh, but in the 
in the uh, 17th century, you had people from various backgrounds that came to the Cape. Most of them were lowly skilled people. Uh, they came as laborers, they came as uh, crew on a ship, uh, they came as soldiers and so forth. So these were mainly lowly skilled people. Uh, they couldn't, most of them uh, were not literate, they were poorly educated and so forth. And that influenced you know, the use of language as well. So you had the amalgam of people at the Cape from various backgrounds. The people who were enslaved were enslaved from various backgrounds as well. They came from parts immediately uh, to the north, for instance, Angola, what you today call Angola, or West Africa. They came from Madagascar or Mozambique, uh, countries that we know today as Mozambique. They came from further to the east, today what we call Zanzibar and Kenya, and they came from places like what we today know as India or Sri Lanka or, uh, generally speaking, what is called the Coromandel Coast. That's the, probably the eastern part of, of the Indian subcontinent. And they also came from the archipelago, that is the, the Indian archipelago, what we today know as uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and so forth. So that, that uh, in itself, uh, meant that people from various backgrounds settled at the Cape. And the Cape was, was um, a vibrant place with a variety of people, variety of cultural backgrounds, and a variety of languages. And that in itself contributed to what we today know as, as, as Afrikaans. Uh, obviously, people had to try and speak uh, the newly arrived ones, try and speak the, you know, the language of, of administration, that is, the, you know, what was called Dutch at the time. But it was not a Dutch that you would call pure Dutch or standardized Dutch. There was nothing called standardized Dutch at the time. So you had this mixture of of languages and people uh, trying to make sense of their daily lives, and they had to do that through a medium. And that medium eventually developed into what is called Cape Dutch and what we today know as, as, as Afrikaans. So uh, given that kind of history, that, that any indication that we're talking about a pure language, a pure this or that, is actually anathema to its to its origins because it's a, it's, a, it's in in essence a language of poor people. It has always been the language of poor people. Uh, the majority of those people have always been black. Uh, it was only later on, uh, in the late 19th century that it became the language of, of, of Afrikaner nationalism. And it's only really in the 1920s and 1930s that it became a language associated with, with the middle classes, uh, with the language of uh, those who were uh, educated uh, and that universities, for instance, start using it as a language of instruction. For instance, the University of Pretoria started out as an English medium university and only in 1932 did it become an Afrikaans medium university, uh, you know, under the, under the imprint of a newly nascent uh, uh, Afrikaner nationalism. Let me stop there and then perhaps we can continue.
You certainly have given us a far, well, I mean, there were a few things which I had for the best part just assumed one way, but this very short history lesson has just appended some of those assumptions. And I suppose because we have this very segment, this is an opportunity then to demystify certain stereotypes or perceptions or myths even that many like me probably would carry or would have carried or continue mm -hmm. still to carry. But just even from the historical perspectives of it, what are some of the early victories that came with what Afrikaans became, specifically when you make mention of the fact that it was largely a language spoken by the people who would now be classified as black people, who would be poor? There would have been victories associated with the language before we start talking about the political issues that have wrought the sort of pain many of us know all too well. Afrikaans ultimately is a language then that can be, whilst attributed to many origins, can purely be referenced as a South African language, at least in our geography. Can you tell us more about some of the things that would have made an Afrikaans speaker then proud? Well, first of all, I mean, it, it, you know, pride and you know being proud of something has to do with it, it's in most cases a political thing. It is a it's a cultural, political thing, and it has to do with what is called tradition. It has to, call, uh, it has to do with what is called the imposition of tradition in most cases. A uh, language like Afrikaans, which is a creole in, in, uh, in its development and, and so forth, its essence had to do essentially with the fact that it was the language of basic communication. It was the funical law of the time. It was the funical law yeah. of the working class people at the time. It had nothing to do with, you know, having pride in in, in speaking this language. It had to do with, uh, I'm able to speak to you and you can understand me in a very basic way. And that kind of basic funical law itself uh, eventually became something more. And if we look at the, the, and I'm not talking about you know this as as, as triumphs or anything like that, mm. it had to do with a very basic, pragmatic way of living your life. And the first real, I think, what I would call standard process of standardization of the language happened, in fact, uh, in 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 the Muslim community. Now uh, you would understand that. The Dutch, when they came to, uh, when they settled here, they also settled the Christian faith, the Christian tradition. And for 150 years or more, that was the the tradition of the Cape. Um, nothing else was allowed. And uh, when they imported slaves, uh, people from India and uh, uh, in the, what is today called Indonesia, those people were obviously from different faiths. Uh, they were from the Islamic faith. They were Buddhist. They were uh, they had various other faiths as well. So what you had at the Cape was also a variety of faiths, um, and the, those other faiths were were in fact repressed. They were not allowed to uh, uh, adherents were not allowed to practice them. Um, uh, um, in the open. So, 
So that when you have the first, um, and that's towards, that's towards the end of the 18th century, uh, when you had the first uh, mosque, which was also a bit of a struggle, uh, when you had the first mosque established, initially that people were taught in what is called uh, Malayo or Java, Java Malay. And it's only around the beginning of the 19th century, around about 1806, 1807, around about that time, uh, even, say, 1812, uh, that the first schooling in the the madrasas, in the mosques, took place through the medium of Cape Dutch. And they started in that process, a process of... of, uh, what one can call a process of standardization of the Afrikaans language. People wrote down the manner in which they they spoke the language. So they used the Arabic script and wrote down this language. And it was in 1960 roundabout that it was there was a further process of standardization because previously people wrote it in different ways. Uh, and now they started establishing this as a way of, of writing it. So they were writing the first real written material in a very serious manner, in a very serious religious manner. That was through the medium of Arabic Afrikaans. Um, so that was, that was a major, I think, achievement, because here you had people who were regarded as illiterate within the Roman uh, and in the Dutch tradition, uh, they were not allowed, they were not uh, literate, and they were not Christian, but they had an alternative literacy, and that is a very important step forward. Um, so you have these, the, if you can call it that, a refined cultural tradition developing within the mosques of Cape Town, for instance. Um, there were a number of other uh, aspects also to that. So you had the first schools as well in, in Cape Town. Um, some of them were slave schools, and slave schools generally had all sorts of problems around uh, what was, you know, what was the curriculum, or how would people trained, and so forth. So that's that's very problematic to regard that as really proper schools. But then you had where slaves were taken to a place called Genadenda, which is in the Overberg area, close to a place called Caliban. You had the Genadenda, the Valley of Grace, uh, if I translate it into English, where people started, where the Moravian church developed their own mission stations. And there you had a tradition of independent printing, independent books, uh, independent magazines, and you would be able to even identify there the first uh, writers, uh, teachers, uh, training college. Uh, uh, yeah, a training college was established at, in this place called Hanarendal, and there these what I would be generally called the slaves, the black people. Um, under the under the under the guidance of of the missionaries, started writing and started contributing uh, in 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 the Afrikaans language, in what they call the Afrikaans language. Obviously, there was also translations 
back to what is called Topper Dutch, often in the scarf with the, the uh, Holland. So it was uh, already a set tradition of people writing their material in, in Cape Dutch or Gnadendal Dutch. So those are two of the major developments in the 19th century. Obviously, one you know one should also keep in mind that when we talk about language and culture and these things, we also speak about expressive culture. And expressive culture has to do with things, the songs, the, the dances, uh, uh, the way that we behave, and so forth. And if we look at that particular tradition, there's a particularly rich tradition, especially in the southern parts of the country, and they have to do with <clears throat> the oral tradition, storytelling, myths, legends, and so forth. All of that uh, in, um, in, in, in spoken Afrikaans, spoken Cape Dutch. And if you, for instance, look at something like, this is my final example on this. If you look, for instance, at, uh, I'm not sure whether you know about the storytelling of the Bleaks. No. Um, Lloyd and Blake. And those stories, for instance, uh, deal essentially with the history of uh, the sound people, uh, the Bushman people. By the, by the, by the mid-19th uh, century, uh, the indigenous languages more or less died out, simply because people were, you know, there was this a story that needs to be told in South African history and by the genocide of, of the Bushmen in the 19th century. <coughs> but, but anyway, uh, so you would have around to, uh, towards, the, towards the middle of the end, towards the latter half of the 19th century, you would have these researchers uh, recording the stories of the sun. And those stories were mostly told uh, uh, through the medium of Cape Dutch, a mixture of uh, sign languages and Cape Dutch. So you would have that this, and this is a well-known, internationally well-known archive of, of oral literature in the world. So that that particular literature also came about through at least partly the medium of uh, of uh, um, Cape Dutch. And Without interrupting you there, Prof, sorry, I'm going to have to just advise that, of course, we are in the process of actually, in fact, and I should have said this earlier, much earlier, I beg your pardon for that, we of course do welcome calls and we especially welcome calls in yes. the Afrikaans language because I think it is in keeping with the sort of, I want to call it a tradition for lack of a better term for now, that when we do have a conversation, when we are celebrating a particular language stroke culture, that people, yes. particularly speakers of that language, are encouraged to call and to call in that very language. So certainly, if you're an Afrikaans speaker and you're thirsting at the opportunity just to speak on SAFM in Afrikaans, you're more than welcome to do so. But perhaps I should just change the conversation ever so slightly because I'm just referring now to sort of the contributions at Afrikaans, and there are many of those contributions. But mm. you mentioned the arts, for instance, and I can't think immediately beyond the movie, the 1985 novel, um, Fila Second, that became a movie in 1988, and how that 
that speaks to issues of identity. And perhaps you might even use a bit of Afrikaans terms and terminology just to take us through, if you like, memory lane, particularly through the gauze, I mean through the gauge of Fila Sekint and the important contribution that was to understanding Afrikaans a little bit better, the issue of interracial issues and just the landscape of South Africa that much more, particularly to the Karoo communities to which you've made reference earlier. Well, yes, I mean, you know, that's that's the kind of story that I think uh, people can relate to, you know, obviously in this particular instance. A mother uh, with a child that was later deemed to be a white child taken away in a, a fight to get him back. Now, obviously, that's the kind of story that I think, you know, relates to more than identity. It relates to something that's very essentially South African as well. The fact is that, you know, one thing that, that raised us, uh, or the politics of raised us, is that it destroyed the sense of community. Uh, that people have, uh, you know, interculturally. And that's something that one needs to look at. I mean, there's, for instance, the, the Hoza-speaking uh, Afrikaans writer called Arthur Fuller, who wrote uh, in the, towards the end of the 1950s, and Fuller wrote two novels, uh, both in Afrikaans. He comes from his Hoza background, he writes about that. He writes about this, his development of being from from uh, the Eastern Cape, coming to Johannesburg and falling into the ways of the city, uh, and what happens with, with when you're there. He's a relatively conservative writer, but the important part of that process of, of writing is that he tries to understand this world that he writes into, this Afrikaans that he writes into. And there's a very interesting story. Part of, part of the story is that uh, around about the 1922 uh, uprising in, 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 in the Witwatersrand, on the Rand, uh, Fuller was employed as, or self-employed as, uh, as a carpenter, and uh, there was a strike, and the strike, uh, the, the mining strike, and the miners were uh, generally white. All of them were mostly white, and that was the time when the Communist Party, for instance, supported the miners with the slogan, uh, you know, keep South Africa white. Uh, so the, the Communist Party was uh, the strong supporter of of keep South Africa white. Uh, workers of the world unite to keep South Africa quite. That was more or less the slogan. Anyway, so uh, Fuller then encounters this poor white man, white miner, who's just lost his job, sitting out in the street, not knowing where to go. He's lost his family, his, his immediate family, doesn't have anything to eat. And Fuller takes out some money and gives it to him to buy bread and so forth. Uh, and this is an act of just simple humaneness. You know, it's common humanity that comes, comes to the fore. And it has nothing to do with race in itself. It has to do with a poor man being helped by somebody who's got some means. And that's the kind of story that we often forget in this country. When it comes to literature, for instance, 
that there are varieties, there are varieties and ways of of dealing with with those basic human emotions, whether they are uh, from poor, you know, people. Or As you round up there, Prof, please, because I've got less than a minute to go. Yes. So, so I mean, I think that what I'm saying is that part of that history of our literature, of South African literature, is also bridging uh, the cultural divide, and we often do not recognize it. And those are the novels that I think the writing that I find particularly important for me are those those works that reach out, either resist in a political sense, but also reach out and reach across the divide that we have in our, our country. Fantastic. We have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your prof. I mean, for your time there, Professor Heinrich Willems, Professor of Afrikaans at the University of Pretoria. The time is 21.47.